0: of the University of Washington's ThriveCast, the podcast designed to help School of Medicine faculty thrive. I'm Trish Kritik, and today we're joined by Dr. Lauga Sokol-Hesner. I'm just gonna call you Lauga from now on because that's how I've known you all all the time that we've known each other. So Lauga is a clinical associate professor in the Division of General Internal Medicine here at the School of Medicine. And he's uh, really an expert in leading change. He and I did a workshop about this. Uh, He's an expert in patient care, safety and quality improvement as well. And so I'm really excited to have you here today Lago to talk more about kind of how do we lead initiatives for change?
1: Thanks Trish, honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um so I'm going to jump right into like the thing that I that causes me to lose sleep at night, which is why is it so hard for all of us to change? Like to change our behaviors, to change our practices, why is, it, why is that the case? And then, of course, I'm going to follow up with like, and, and what can we do about it? But, but first of all, like, why is it so hard?
1: Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I think all of us having been through two years of constant change are probably ready to say done uh, in terms of change. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I think change can be scary. It can be really unsettling. We all have developed routines and know how to do things. And when someone comes to us and says, okay, now you got to do something different. Um, especially if we're stressed or strained in some other way, I think it can be really hard to think about doing something different. I think along with that comes that, you know, when someone's asking us to change, we may end up wondering, well, hey, how much do they understand about the way I'm doing things now? And what are they trying to achieve with this? You know, as much as someone can explain to us rationally why why we might need to change or why it might be a good idea as humans, I think we're often really steered by our emotions and our instincts and how we feel about things and oftentimes I think that can make change really difficult.
0: So I love a lot of things you just said and the first one I think is worth amplifying to start with which is man right now it's hard to think about changing anything because it feels like everything's been changing like every day, week, month for the last two plus years so I think that's a good awareness for all of us to kind of take to the situations right now. But then when you kind of talked about kind of in general why is it hard for us to change i think you kind of gravitated to the part where someone's asking you to change and i think that 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 part where maybe doesn't feel like you're a partner in that doesn't feel like you're people who are asking you to change really understand what you do or why you do it and so there's a lot of gray spaces or blank black boxes around the change makes you kind of get anxious and resistant to having people tell you what to do and so I don't know that resonates with me it happens to me when people tell me <laughs> you got to do something different and I, i'm like do you really understand what i do so how can we make that process easier or better for everyone if we all agree there's something that we feel like change is warranted because that might always be the case but let's let's start with that presumption so how do you step into that space
1: yeah um you know there are despite having been through a lot of change we all i think think of many things we would like to have be different so change is still really important and when we're going to lead change i think we have to not only make sure we know why we're doing it and that there's a good reason but that as we talk about it with other people that we not only address the rationale or the rational part of it but also the emotional or instinctual sides of it Um, how we feel about the change and how other people might feel about that change because i think that feeling part ends up actually being really important Uh, that. And then I think we also need to find ways to make it easier to do the thing we are wanting people to do. Ideally, making the path of change easier, uh, making it easier to do the right thing, so to speak, is a really important part.
0: I hear you. Whenever I've embarked on activities like this, I talk about, you know, hearts and minds. And so I think you have to tend to both hearts and minds. And then making things at the other end of it easier, but also the path to change easier, I think, is really important. I know you're a Cotter fan, and I know that you kind of espouse the the kind of eight steps of Cotter to to structure change. And I thought maybe we could spend some time talking through those steps, because I think they're particularly uh, a useful framework for people to use as they think about this. And we could talk for two hours about this, I know that we could. So I'm going to try to focus us a little bit for this podcast. So I'll start with some of the, the first step, I'll just put it out there. And that is create a sense of urgency. I'm curious what are your strategies for creating a sense of urgency?
1: Yeah, so when I'm thinking about making a a sense of urgency, a reason for action, I think about two things. I think about stories and data. You know, ultimately my goal is to be able to talk about the need for change in a way that resonates with whatever audience it is that I'm talking with. And so before I even begin talking with them, I need to make sure I understand what's important to them what matters to them, what uh, what they care about. And I need to understand my change initiative and how that might connect to what matters to them. And then I try and think about stories or case examples that demonstrate at least portions of what might matter or what the change is about. And then I try and share data that takes that story, that N of one, so to speak, and makes it an N of many. And so that I'm saying, well, it's not just that one story. It's actually this happens X percent of the time. And so forth. I think by making those connections, we can better help people understand why is it we need to change now. What is the reason that we have to be doing something differently?
0: Yeah, I I, got, I think that comes back to that hearts and minds. And I'm a big fan of storytelling. I, in my clinical, when I wore a clinical leadership hat, often led with stories from patients or families um, in the critical care space where I work. Then education space stories from learners about what the, their experiences are like I think are really powerful. But I, I like how you partner that with with data because there are some people who are like that's a great story, but tell me if that's really a problem everywhere. And so I like that that combo. But kind of get people activated so that they say yeah, there's a reason. Whether it's the hearts or minds part, there's a there there is a sense of urgency to to change what we're doing. What comes next?
1: Yeah. So the next step in Cotter's Eight Steps to Change is building a guiding coalition, and um, that's really who's the group of people that's going to guide the change, help lead the change, and that can be, seem really easy to build that group sometimes, but it's, I think there's actually a lot of complexity there. The way I like to think about it is who do we need to help get the work done, and there are two sort of big groups of people that I think we need to have as part of that guiding coalition. One is who are the key leaders, so that might be the executive sponsor, the person senior in the organization who says, okay, this project's a good idea. If it needs resources, I'll provide some. If there are barriers, I'll help you navigate them. Uh, there needs to be a project leader. There needs to be some key content experts. Those might be the most straightforward uh, folks to build. The other big group of people to think about is who are the stakeholders and who are their representatives and how can we make sure that we are adequately If it's a clinical project involving patients and families, as well as clinicians and professionals, if it's a teaching or research project, how are we including students and faculty and other people that work in those settings? How are we being inclusive? Are we being uh, representative of all views? And have we sought out and encouraged and built diversity in our group so that we're getting that range of opinions and perspectives that are really important for good change? Yeah,
0: I think this is a super important spot. And, you know, I two thoughts that I would add to what you said. The first is like this idea of who's not at the table. And sometimes I just ask the people at the first meeting, what voices have we forgotten to make sure that they're there? I think the risk, and I know you've talked about this, is that you could end up with a gigantic group. And so trying to figure out how you you parse that is an important part of the process of building that guiding coalition. And then I think embedded in what you said also is like having some folks who have dissenting opinions so that they actually challenge what you're putting forward, so that you can kind of have those conversations as you're striving to to move forward. Not once you have a fully baked plan. The next steps, I think, are about crafting and then communicating a vision. I mean, obviously, crafting a vision is is actually a lot of work and an important phase. I don't want to minimize that because I think that's really important. But I'm gonna, for the sake of us moving our conversation forward, ask you, how do you communicate that vision? What are your What are your approaches to
1: that yeah communicating about the vision is is a big piece of work and um important to, to not skip past it i think there are a couple ways to think about that one are the who where are the settings and, and which are the groups and people that you need to reach with your message oftentimes staff meetings or other organizational meetings or committees emails uh special meetings that are set up whether in person or by zoom all of those venues and forums, I think, uh, thinking very broadly about that's really important. But then I think when you're actually talking about it, I, I like to personally think about a structure where we start by sharing a story or an example or talk about the risk of, you know, what is the problem here? Uh, what are we trying to solve? What's the nature of it? What's, how big is it? What are the causes of the problem? I think helping people learn about it and understand what you've come to understand, I think is really important. And I think, uh, sorry, you're probably hearing my beeper in the background.
0: That's okay. We know you're also a doctor who takes care of patients. Yeah.
1: So uh, I think beyond that is making sure that you've shared that vision. What is that better path forward? And then figuring out a way to ask that audience for how they can help. What is it that you need from them? What is it just their cooperation or time or ideas? What might it be? But using a structure like that, I think, can be... Uh, really helpful in making sure that you make the most of the time you do get with people.
0: Let me ask one follow up about that. And then we can decide if we need to take a pause for you to answer your pager. And that is, the word is communicate. And I feel like maybe somewhere in there has to also be listening. So is that part of your strategy at this point, point? Or have you done that earlier? I'm just, I'm still worried about what you said at the very beginning that people will feel like their voices aren't being heard or that their perspectives aren't aren't being taken into consideration.
1: Yeah, I, it's, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's critical to make sure there's an opportunity for questions. As much as we think we might communicate clearly about something, oftentimes we've forgotten something or didn't realize that someone might be wondering about something. Um, so it's really important to have that dialogue that it's not just a
0: one-way street. All right, so, so far what we've talked about mostly is a lot of stuff that we do getting ready to, to do. We We plan and talk and listen and collaborate and make a vision. And then when do you do, when do you implement, what are the steps to getting something kind of, you know, rolled out, if you will?
1: Yeah. So implementation, I think oftentimes when we're in a change process, we, we do so much of this prep work that we've talked about figuring out what we're going to do. And we kind of think, okay, when, when we finish that, then we, then we just sort of throw it out there in the real world and, and that's it. And it's going to work. And we just we flick the switch and mm-hmm. it's on and that's that. But at least in my experience, I think I found that being actively involved in implementation and in the in the aftermath, so to speak, that it is actually really critical. Not only for making the change work, but actually for our learning in that process and making sure we're close to that close to that change.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Like sometimes I think there's fatigue, and you're like, okay, we're there, go. And and yet there's so much that happens after that. So before we talk through those steps, I do have one very specific question. Are you a fan of a go live date for new programs or not? Um, uh, it's a good question. I think it depends. I've, I've
1: done that certainly with some things. Certainly, for instance, if it's an if it's an information technology or an IT change, there's often a go live and a, there is sort of a, fl- a switch that gets flicked on or off. For many other things, I actually prefer to do testing and then expand the testing and sort of uh, sometimes more of a soft lunch can be better. I think it really depends on the nature of the project, the change, what the risks are, all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I sometimes use it to create a sense of urgency, even if there's not a a switch to flick. But I also think I try to hold it as not carved in stone so that you can respond to the stuff that you've been talking about. But anyway, you've alluded to the fact that there might be bumps in the road. So what are the next steps and cotters process of kind of going from communicating that vision where do we go next
1: yeah so after implementing the change or or sometimes before it is really thinking about what are the be, going to be the barriers or the obstacles to change what's going to prevent this from working and ideally we've thought about that and addressed that during the design stage but sometimes we can't anticipate everything and so after it goes live so to speak or we implement we discover new problems and you know i think we got to be problem solvers. We've got to be resourceful. We never know exactly what we're going to find, but sometimes we find we have to fix the structures or systems that are preventing change. That's often part of the pre-work. Sometimes we encounter a barrier and we just got to find a way to navigate around it. You know, an example I think of is that I've got a, a change I want to put in place and there are 10 different areas where I want that change to be implemented, but maybe you know, seven of those areas don't really want to do it right now, but three of them are okay, well, then I'm going to start with three. I'm not going to try and force it through on those seven, see how it goes with the three, and then we can spread it further if it's going well. You know, so a lot can happen. I think leadership in the in this phase, especially in removing obstacles, it's one of the most important areas for leaders to be active. In my mind, I think they have a role in protecting creativity. I think they have a role in encouraging reasonable, change-oriented risks. Um, we're often risk averse as humans, um, but leaders can really see, okay, this is worth this, taking this chance on this uh, idea. And I think they also have a really important role in improve, ensuring psychological safety and making sure that there's that culture of continuous improvement that we're always striving to do better.
0: Yeah, that place where it's safe to to both take the risks but also to speak up if things aren't working is really important, I think, as you as you go to this this next step. Okay. So as a leader, I'm trying to support removing obstacles or maybe saying let's let's pilot it here and learn from it and then move on. And then how do we move forward from there?
1: Yeah, so. Ideally, something will go well somewhere and uh, we'll have something to celebrate. And I think celebrating those what I would call small wins is really critical because at this point in the change process, we may be very tired and we need some energy and everyone can use some good news. So uh, having a measurement plan, being engaged, knowing where things are going well, and then calling out and celebrating those improvements, but maybe even more importantly, the people who are helping make them happen. I think is really critical. That allows us to to see, okay, this is maybe actually going the right direction.
0: I love that. That's one of my favorite parts about leading change is celebrating the small wins and really celebrating the big wins occasionally too. But those launch days when we there is a go live date or the first thing that kind of happens successfully as we roll stuff out, I am a big fan of celebrating those moments. And sometimes it doesn't go exactly the way we want. So what do we do then when it's like a little rockier? Yeah, you
1: know, uh, sometimes we got to adjust midstream. Maybe it's a small tweak in the actual change. Maybe it's put a pause and go back to the drawing board. Maybe it's something in between. But I think we need to be really engaged and responsive in that phase. Um, That's one of the ways that we retain trust among the people that we're asking to do something different.
0: What are the last couple of steps that Cotter would endorse? And then I have a couple more questions.
1: yeah. So after celebrating those uh small wins is building on the change so not stopping expanding it if you started it in one area involving more people making it bigger and then the last of the eight steps is uh, making it part of the culture making uh supporting the people the processes the systems that are needed to make sure this sustains over time uh, and making sure we have really thought about how people think about the change how they feel about the change and and really solidify what it is that we're having them do differently.
0: Yeah, I think that's the hardest step, <laughs> to be honest. I also think in that phase, like, kind of when you're kind of building, I think it's when you notice the unintended consequences of the change that you planned. And so pausing to see those seems really important. But changing the culture is takes time and reinforcement. I'm wondering if you have any wisdom about how you go from, like, we're doing something new to this is how we do it. <laughs> yeah, that is a really... Tricky
1: process. It doesn't happen overnight. I think it's important to have a good track record of of clear change with measures and numbers that you can share with people. I think it kind of comes back to that beginning idea of of stories and data. So where are the stories about where things have gone well, and what's the data showing that it's not just a one off, but it's actually routinely happening? I think there's also a lot to be said for setting the right message and tone when people first join an organization. Um, or when, you know, regular reminders or intervals come around. So during orientation, you know, here's how we do things. Making sure it's part of policies and guidelines and procedures and things like that. Making sure that senior leaders are reinforcing the message at key organizational meetings. Things like that all I think can help.
0: A bunch of different reinforcing behaviors. Okay, last question for you. I have had some change initiatives that have gone great. And I have had some that have gone off the rails completely. And sometimes they've gone off the rails and we've been able to get it back on the rails. So where do you think most change initiatives kind of go, go wrong, if you will? And, and is there anything we can do to avoid that?
1: Yeah, I think anybody who's part of change is going to have some failure. And in many ways, it's, it's honestly really normal, I think, uh, to have failure with change. And we, we kind of have to expect that that's going to happen and make sure that we learn from it we've talked about there's so many different ways change can fail, but some of the big ones I think are forgetting to attend to how people feel about the change. I, I really argue mm-hmm. that how people feel about the change is more important than what it actually will mean for them um, in a, in a rational way. And uh, so I think that's one big area and that's why Cotter's focuses so much on attending to the, to the heart and the emotions and the instinct. I think the other piece that I personally see is, uh, that the vision hasn't really been fully thought out. It's a, it's a half-baked vision. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it's, it's really hard to figure out what the right vision is, figure out the right design for the change. And I, I think that is often, I, I pair that in my head with challenges with sustainability. I think oftentimes we're able to come up with changes and put them in place and see some short, short-term change. But as soon as we take our eye off the ball and we move to something else, because we've all got a ton of things on our plate, the change that we put in place kind of falls apart and it might happen rapidly or gradually. And then we come back a time later and and the change is no longer in effect. And we think, oh my gosh, what happened? And I think that relates back to what was our original vision? How was this going to be sustained? Did we have the resources we need? Had we built it into our, you know, existing processes? What how did did we design with the end in mind? So for my for me, that's I think a big piece of it. And that comes back to making sure we thought carefully about what is the change that we're really trying to make here.
0: I really appreciate that. First, the, the kind of coming back to how do people feel and that emotion. I think that's why right now, after two years of pandemic, the feeling just might be like, I can't do change right now. And I think we have to attend to that. I think the other part that you talked about is like, maybe we haven't fully fleshed out that vision. And without that, it can be really hard to get there because we don't really see how it's, you know figured out how it's going to fit into the stuff that we do i think for me one learning i have is sometimes in my early stages of change that they all relied on me being the champion <laughs> for everything that we did which is fine except for that that really is not sustainable and so i think that concept of like how are there how are we sure that there's a like a a group of folks many of us who think that this is the way that we should be going and, and it comes back to kind of hearing people at the beginning but I'll just let learner listeners learn from my mistake, which is one individual doesn't drive change. It can't be relying on one person. That 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 was one of the harder ones I learned because sometimes I thought I could just will it to happen. It didn't work.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Trish. And one of the mental exercises I often put myself through is how can I design myself out of a job or how can I design myself out of this change so that it I am not required to make it happen or sustain. Um, there may be someone else who it relies on at that point, it, you know, we can't, we can't fully walk away from everything. There are a lot of things we need to put energy into going forward to sustain them. But how can it be person and uh, less dependent on
0: me specifically, or or you specifically? I think that's a super, that's a great pearl. I guess I'm going to end by saying, do you have any one last pearl you want to share with folks? You've, you've given us a lot of wisdom about the challenges of change, but like a, kind of a structured approach to thinking it through.
1: We've joked a lot about how much change fails. And, and um, I think it's very true. But I also would say that it's I think it's really worth it. And our world needs a lot of change. And uh, it's also one of the most rewarding things I think I've done in my career and my life. And I strongly encourage those who want to make change to step up and and try and make it happen because we need more of that.
0: I think that's a very inspirational way for us to end. So I want to thank you, Lauga, for, for the time of kind of thinking this through with us and kind of sharing your experience. Cause I think it's really helpful. And I and I do think there's lots of members of our community who are excited about kind of creating change and evolving the world, you know, small and big that we live in. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from this episode. So listen to more episodes of Thrivecast. You can find them at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find them at the UW School of Medicine faculty website at faculty.uwmedicine.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.